All right, that was quite the intro. Uh, we have a, a really special guest this evening. Uh, we'd like I'd like to welcome Armin to the Kayvon and Friends podcast. Say hello to the fine folks out there. How's it going? Oh, good, man. It's good. It's really good to hear hear your voice. It's been a long time. Uh, and again, I was mentioning earlier, I know you're super busy these days, so I do really appreciate you being here. Uh, why don't you tell the uh, the hundreds of thousands of listeners out there <laughs> what, what our topic for today is? Well, I didn't realize he has such a following. Jeez. Yeah, it's huge. On. It's huge. Um, I figured we'd chat about politics a bit uh, just because I don't think that topic's been covered on your show yet. And, no, it uh, hasn't. I tend to dabble in that quite a bit on a on a maybe global scale, sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that'd be a nice thing to talk about these days. That sounds good. It's also something I think sometimes people shy away from. It's one of those touchy topics. Like you have like politics, you have religion, you have certain other topics that people try to shy away from normally. But uh, here, here on uh, K One and Friends, we don't shy away from such topics. We want to dive deep and double down. That's what I say. Yeah, it's uh, hard hitting journalism here, isn't it? <laughs> the hardest. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, maybe my first question is: What first got you into? At, you know, at, at all interested in the political uh, spectrum, like that whole realm, how did you first sort of sink your toes into that? Um, I mean, to be honest, I think it kind of happened just by accident. So when I was a kid, we didn't have cable TV at home. So mm-hmm. we only had like five, six channels and there's no kids channels really. Um, so I'd watch a lot of news just because it was, you know, the evening news at six o'clock and again at 10 o'clock. Right. And, uh, and then I'd see shows like Royal Canadian Air Force, which was on CBC mm-hmm. on a Friday nights. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. this hour is 22 minutes, which was, I think, right after it back then in the 90s. Classic um, television, uh, Canadian television broadcasting. Exactly, yeah, Canadian comedy. And uh, and those shows, to get the jokes, you basically have to follow the news pretty actively. And most of it was political. Mm-hmm. Um, so I made sure I was on top of the news so I can get the jokes on the Friday night and then have that go full, full circle. So uh, that's basically kind of what got me into following politics was just the amount of news I watched. And then it just sort of became second nature and uh, an interest of mine. So you were up on your water cooler talk from a very young age. Basically, yes. That's uh, That's very cool. Probably as early as age nine, I think. I probably dabbled in it, yeah. To this day, I still don't dabble too much in in the news. (laughs) I don't know. I think, I mean, for me, the news has become is it's a very different i think when we were kids there was a little bit more cut and dry and and uh rational factual factual type type information back then whereas now it's sort of more like any other tv show where they're trying to glamorize and make profits and earnings and 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 sensationalize maybe is the word i'm looking for it's a little bit more out there so i just find i don't know news is tough and then there's a period i think which we've all lived through i guess in our in our generation where you'd find more credible news coming from comedy sources like you were mentioning earlier rather than like the, the, the old CNNs that we were, that we were used to sort of having as the juggernauts. We started listening to like, I don't know, daily show and SNL and Conan and whoever else. And they would have, they would give us sort of more raw news in, in through comedy rather than, than what we get from, from this news networks, which was very strange. It was a strange time. 
Yeah, it, it's become a challenge for a lot of the news outlets for on a diff, on a few fronts. One, in the last decade or so, social media has picked up so much that um, information's got become basically uh, free, and mm-hmm. so the news typically has to compete with the social media platforms to keep it engaging enough so people will actually pay attention to their website, to their shows, and that kind of thing. Um, so that's that's been one challenge I think in the in the media front. And if you want to get specific about Canada too many um, outlets are buying each other out. So if you you know right. look at all your newspapers, your TV stations, that kind of stuff, they're typically owned by only two or three companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really narrowed the lens. Bell, Rogers, et cetera, of, like those, those big folks? Basically, yeah, it's basically Bell, Rogers, um, and, uh, and Post Media. They're the, probably mm-hmm. the largest three. There's obviously some smaller players as well. And then right. the public broadcaster, CBC. Um, so that's definitely changed um, how the news is presented. Uh, a lot of times these these outlets are not given you know enormous in, uh, resources to go out and do the uh, the best they can do sort of speak so uh, that's been one challenge on the media front and in terms of um, I guess credibility or where people get their information I think the the comedy space has been a very good one it's gotten very popular like you said the daily show and so on uh, in engaging people that are probably not engaged otherwise um, and and to their credit, you know, Daily Show, Colbert. Um, I, I actually don't watch these shows, so I forget their names. I just see their faces. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's a few others that are quite good. Uh, they're typically uh, reaching a, a wider audience uh, and presenting a lot of information there. And I think they've done a pretty good job. Yeah, I think what it does is it, it to a certain it has a twofold effect, in my opinion. One of the things it does is it makes it more palatable for people who normally wouldn't like that sort of thing, like like myself, listeners like myself who are a little bit more basic. Uh, like they make it a little bit more entertaining in a way, but like I don't know, just they, they give you they give you the they give you the facts and then they just spin it to make it comedy, right? And then on the other side of it, though, you kind of the credibility is a little bit lost in that sense because it is coming from a humorous tone and like it's kind of almost condescending in a way to the to the viewer the listener because they're not they're not able to give you the news straight up anymore it's like it's a weird little dichotomy that you kind of have to like okay well i'll 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 sugar it up a little bit so you can swallow it but then you're not really getting that that raw material anymore and i think a lot of the problem like you mentioned is having those big three or big four companies that are controlling most of the news and stuff is that you you're often getting a skewed angle of the news or one certain perspective of the news rather than sort of being able to figure it out for yourself they're they're kind of giving that giving that answer for you in a way whereas before i think they would make it more open-ended and let you the viewer sort of um get get what you will from it yeah i i think the the spin that the comedy shows need to put on it is exactly for the reason you stated they need to make it more palatable uh, because otherwise people wouldn't tune in and i think there's good and bad in that uh, and what I you know cited earlier in terms of getting a larger audience, but the downside is you do le- lose some detail. And I think mm-hmm. um, even if the news isn't palatable for many, or it's not engaging, or it feels depressing, it's still relevant because it affects everyone's lives to a pretty large degree. And the yeah. more disengaged we get, uh, the more injustices happen. So it's you know people can can control what they consume or how much they consume, but I think they should still consume even if it's a minimal amount. Yeah, and I think touching on what you said near the very beginning is as how you mentioned when when we were kids we would watch there would be a news uh, news news spot at six p.m. and there'd be another one like late news at ten, and that's kind of like how the news was presented. And then somewhere from then to now, everything has become twenty-four hour news, possibly like you said because of the influence of social media or the need to just 
I don't know. So I, I find that having that 24 hour news cycle now just does, it means like you can't just have twice a day or three times a day, like having that morning news, I guess, segment. But now you have to always have something on at all times. So like you find that there's a lot of filler up on the news as well when you're watching the TV um, old school style news is that you there's a lot of just stuff that fills time because you have to fill time that you're going 24 hours a day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they have quotas and targets to hit uh, in the newsroom. And a lot of times if there isn't much going on, there is some filler information. Of course, right now with COVID-19 going on, I mean, really all of 2020. 2020 started off with, you know, a geopolitical dispute between the United States and Iran, which occurred in Tehran. World War III memes all about. Yeah, and then that resulted in an unfortunate uh, missile hit in Tehran that took out a plane um, and killed uh, 200-some passengers. Yeah. And, you know, that led to the beginning of COVID-19. And then there was, you know, Kobe Bryant, his plane crashed and... There was probably two or three other things that happened that I'm just completely missing off the top of my head. And then obviously COVID-19 has has taken over the news cycle basically entirely. Uh, so you're probably hard-pressed to find any filler information right now just because there is a lot of uh, actual news going on. That's true. People are looking for updates every minute. There's there's always people looking these days. I think was part of it, I think, was they, they people like SNL, people like The Daily Show, they noticed their ratings were super, super strong, talking about politics all the time. And it was it was actually, like you said, it had a very positive influence on, on making more people engaged in politics, caring about politics. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, that that part of it was that part of it was definitely. A positive. I think I lost my train of thought where I was going. No, with that I, one. I see what you're getting at, and I think that's those shows have done it, and obviously the internet and social media has done it as well. I mean, there's a lot of people that would not normally be engaged with politics, and they'll see, um, you know, different posts on say Instagram, and not necessarily memes, but just uh, a lot of uh, people who are socially conscious or um, you know are involved with social justice, maybe at an NGO level or a political level, and they they share a lot of different. Uh, you know, pieces of information on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook that people might not otherwise uh, consume. So I think there's there's that angle of it as well. I just remembered where I was trying to go with that last thought. So I I've, I had always been a huge fan of SNL from like you know the Adam Sandler days, the Glory days, you know those, those Norm Macdonald like when, when was that, that whole era where I was just really really loving it. And you know once in a while they would have politics mixed in there, and that's all well and good. And then I found that shows like that just became. 99% about politics and it really like the last I don't know how long it's been maybe five to seven years it's really lost a, a lot of steam like they, they obviously doing the whole Sarah Palin stuff is really huge for them and you know that that stuff that made them really big the George Bush Jr. sketches all those things that they noticed were were getting really popular now they're focused so heavily on those that I feel like it may have pushed some people away because I know it's pushed me away I don't know if that's added to the the overall quality of content that they've been able to put out or that they're I don't know. Maybe it's limited them in terms of their their comedic uh, spectrum, but I think that's it's kind of unfortunate. That's been one of the unfortunate sort of um, drawbacks in this situation, where these comedy channels are now so focused and stuck on on this one topic that they can't really explore others for fear of I don't know not not being up on the news. Well, I, I think there's that, and there's also the fact that time you know as we go along, year after year, the political sphere has become more of a circus. So it's, yes. it's easy, it's easy content for them. You know, if you want to mm-hmm. go back in the, in the sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, you had to really struggle to get gold. You know, when co- comedians say, Oh, that this is, you know, gold for a comedian. Yeah. It basically, 
you know, there's obviously examples in the past, but the real one was the, the, the Lewinsky scandal with Bill Clinton. When that hit, mm-hmm. every comedian was salivating because they're like, this is amazing. I can make a yeah. million jokes out of it. Material for ages, yeah. Absolutely, right? And then going forward, um, you know, there's other examples as well. But once Trump hit... Mission accomplished. Um, it, mission accomplished is a good one. Yeah, there's tons yeah. of those examples in the Bush era. Yeah. Um, but once once Trump took office, it just became a gold mine, and it just became too easy, I think. Yeah, daily. Um, so, how how do you Hourly. not tap into that material? It's just it's yeah. just it's it's sitting there. I would too if I was them. So do, it's almost you like remember? you can't blame them. No, of course not. No, it, I mean it's it's the it, but that's I mean at the same, one time you're they're kind of going with the easiest option is not necessarily the best option. But do you remember how how little we thought of George Bush Jr. at the time? I mean I don't know if we share this exact same political ideals, but in general society I felt very much looked down and thought he was a little bit slow and not the brightest, you know, not the sharpest tool in the shed as as they say but like looking back now to where we are now it feels like it's a completely different world like like you said it's it's i think even back then he was still to a certain extent a politician or 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 some political family kind of like we have right now with the trudeau's right you kind of get that semblance of of leadership and, and politics and and having that that frame of mind whereas now it's it's like basically it's idiocracy come to life. Uh, if you've seen that movie from from what the mid nineties, late nineties, whatever that was, maybe even early two thousands actually. That was that was a prediction I was hoping would not happen, but it did. Yeah, basically, I mean, with Bush, I think most people didn't agree with his policies, but to some degree, he was the status quo politician that people mm-hmm. were typically used to. Um, but with Trump, it's it's a whole new ball game. And uh, it actually reminds me, shortly after Trump got elected, there was a meme going around with George Bush's uh, presidential portrait. And it basically just said, you know, don't you miss me yet? Something to that effect. <laughs> because I'm sure a lot of people would rather still have Bush uh, in power than Trump. So Yeah. Where's uh, Jeb when you need him? <laughs> Jeb, well, Jeb. Yeah, Jeb, Jeb didn't get much of a chance because the, no. the playing field got too crowded. But that's a different story. Yeah. yeah. Man, and it's also interesting that, yeah, I think everywhere in the world – has is looking sort of to American politics as sort of that that benchmark or that you know I, I don't know if they still are the most powerful you know country in the world in terms of geopolitical whatever you want to call that like they vote like they had been for so many years I think they potentially have lost quite a lot of respect internationally in the inter- international um, world in, in their perspective I, I think I think maybe this has had some sort of a negative effect I don't know maybe if you want to talk on that and see what your opinion is. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. I think, you know, historically, when America took its foothold in the world in terms of a, you know, superpower, a global leader, um, you know, quote unquote, the moral conscious, even though I'm sure most people don't agree with that, yeah. um, there was there was still a level of credibility. You know, the, uh, you know, worldwide, people might say, you know, I don't like those Americans, they're this and that and that kind of stuff. But there was still some, there was a legitimate voice and their opinion had pull. Uh, but what we're seeing now with with Trump taking office, no one takes them seriously anymore, and uh, and they've you know retracted to look inwardly as well. So it's kind of a double whammy. Trump kind of just says we don't care about the UN, we don't care about NATO, who cares yeah. about everybody else? Let's care about ourselves. Um, and then on top of it, when they do say something that might be uh, more global or relevant to others, it's not taken uh, the way it used to be taken. It does not have nearly as much pull as it used to as well. So that's absolutely been a factor. And, 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 and frankly, it's just because of Trump and who he surrounds himself with. Do, do you think he ever wanted to win? I feel like every action no. he took 
made it seem like he was just there for the for the uh, the media time for the exposure just to like you know get his face out there like I think someone had calculated all the amount of uh, media exposure he had prior to the to the election and and tried to quantify it and and it was like hundreds of millions of dollars of basically free. Uh, his name being out there in the news. I think that's really what he wanted. I don't think he ever expected to win. And I think he still doesn't want the job to this day. And it, it's weird that it it shows in so it shows its ugly head in so many weird ways. No, he, he didn't want to win. And I, I don't think he thought he'd win. Um, no. A big reason he did it, like you just said, it's free airtime. It was free advertising. And if I'm not mistaken, The Apprentice was up for renewal with NBC. So right. this was a this was a marketing strategy on his behalf and and you know and his people because I mean what better marketing can you get than running for president your face is all over the place you're all over the debates you're all over the newspapers you're all over social media people want to interview you especially if you say something that's completely off the rails mm-hmm. uh, and you know if he didn't win he would have been fine with that too he would have just called the system rigged and he would have gotten his airtime and he would have been happy and walked away and gotten a couple show deals for sure. Sure, yeah, it's anything. There would have been, you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity. There really no. isn't. Um, and the fact that he won, he probably said, okay, I'll go with it. And I think still to this day, years later, he probably still thinks it's a TV show because he acts like it's a TV show. And he's very concerned about ratings. He tweets about ratings. He tweets about popularity, uh, you know. So it's, I don't know what's going on in his head, obviously, but his approach to presidency is the same approach he has to absolutely everything else. And it's all about hype. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's his angle with everything, unfortunately. And here we are today. Like speculation in the stock market. That's kind of <laughs> yeah, basically, <laughs> yeah. Thing. Yeah, man. If things uh, appear to be good, then things just happen to be good at that same time. Yeah, they say and it's also per- funny perception's that- more powerful than reality, right? And then people like, like, let's say, if we're looking back historically at the at the overall trends, like people like Bush and people like uh, Trump have have um, heavily, heavily been been. Oh my God, what's the word? I'm coming out of, out of they, they've basically uh, banked in on all the work that their their previous presidents had done prior to them. So Clinton put in that work for for quite a quite a while. Uh, I think the economy was probably the best in the U.S. that had been in a long, long time under under Clinton's era. But you didn't really start to see the full effects of that under Bush. So it's funny people have, are, are a little bit short sighted when it comes to these things, where you don't necessarily look at the historical importance. You just say, okay, well, this president's in power now. I'm doing better than I was five years ago, so it must be this president that put that work in. I think Trump is benefiting from a lot of that same stuff that maybe Obama had put in during that time as well. Like it's, it's sort of this cyclical pattern that keeps happening. And I, I don't think a lot of people see that cycle in a weird way. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's, um, that's one of the, you know, the short sightedness when it comes to how we consume politics and we consume reality is uh, like you just said, we're, we're very concerned about right now. And we just associate what's going on right now with who's in power right now. Uh, but time and time again, it's, you know, whatever policy you put in good or bad, it takes time to develop unless it's something very extreme. Uh, yeah. So you'll see multiple examples in any country, in any part of the world, well, a, po- a, po- a policy might be instituted and you might not see the effects of it until the next government comes in and it might be of a different political stripe and they won't get any credit for it. Um, so it's, uh, you know, and that's that's the one of the huge, huge downsides of uh, our political structures and our public administration sh- structures that prevent us from having long-term visions within government to say, okay, where do we want to be five years from now? Where do we want to be 10 years from now, 20 years from now? 
It's all mm-hmm. in four-year cycles because if you think in 10, 20-year visions and you institute policies that will benefit you know, society 10 to 20 years from now, you're probably not going to be in power then and you won't get any credit for it. So you might as yeah. well work in short-term four-year cycles to get the most credit. There's there's some there's a there's a little analogy they give in uh, you know in political spheres when when a party or president in the U.S. for example gets elected, what they normally do in in the first two years is they cut sir so they cut spending they cut some services if they need to balance a budget for example even if they're more of a left left wing stripe, and then mm-hmm. in the third year they typically coast. And in the fourth year, they start spending because right. spending sounds good when you go into an election that we're going to promise all this kind of stuff. So it's kind of a yeah. cut, cut, co-spend. Um, and that's a strategy that's done basically by any uh, political party. doesn't matter if you're mm-hmm. conservative or liberal. And, yeah. uh, and that that's part of the short-sightedness where no one looks beyond the four years, unfortunately. So it kind of sounds like they're running it like a business in terms of making sure those quarterly profits and reports coming out good for their shareholders. It has that sort of mentality behind it. I mean, I remember I took this one uh, random course in university. It was Japanese culture through business. It was a really fun, interesting course I took in my fourth year as an elective. Uh, And I learned a lot about Japanese business practices. And obviously, one of the things that I gleaned from that was that they didn't have those quarterly type mentalities even yearly they weren't trying to make money right away they had this like you said 10 year 20 year even 50 year vision for their organizations the companies and they want to make sure that they would be profitable for hundreds of years that they were looking deep deep into the future and even if they lost money for the first couple decades it wasn't even a thing to them and i think and i think i don't know if that's the answer i don't know if that's the correct method but it's definitely a very interesting different perspective to look at as opposed to a lot of the western nations who are that need that quarterly uh, profit assessments, you know, for the shareholders or whatnot. It's 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 really cool thing to look at what they're doing there and seeing if there's maybe some kind of middle ground that we can work on. Yeah, I've never been a fan of the concept of let's run government like a business. That's usually an argument made by a lot of the right wing factions, thinking that if we run it like a business, it'll be a lean um, organization that runs mm-hmm. very efficiently and everyone gets the best bang for their buck. But the fact of the matter is, government is not a business. The, the, the object and purpose of business is to generate profits and make money. That's not the object of government. Government's purpose, government's purpose, public administration's purpose is to serve people, whether it makes money yeah. or not. Yeah. Right? So that approach you know, on the onset is flawed to begin with. And I, I really encourage people to get away from that mentality because it's so popular uh, to think of it that way. But it's that the objectives between business and government are entirely different. How how do you think it's possible? Because I I think a lot of people know that money in politics is is the root cause or, or of, of, of a lot of these problems. But how do you think we would even go about restructuring the political system? Like this is a huge question. I don't expect obviously to have answers, but I'm just wondering if you've been thinking about this at all. How 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 would we even go about starting the restructure to kind of remove money from campaigning and and all that stuff and make it just about people who actually just give a damn about about where they live and, and their, their citizens and trying to make a difference rather than people trying to, I don't know, look out for the best interests of big oil companies or big coal companies or, you know, whatever, whatever the current status quo is, how do we get away from that? Yeah. I mean, there's obviously different approaches and I have been thinking about this, you know, inspired obviously by a lot of the, the teachings in the Baha'i faith with mm-hmm. respect to um, administration and elections and whatnot. And there's a few angles one can take, with respect to getting money out of politics, uh, you know, one can look at it from removing the concept of lobbyists, which is a legal entity, 
right. and their ability to influence uh, people who are in positions of power, fund their their political organizations, their campaigns, and whatnot. Uh, but there is also another angle, which I think is a bit more practical, uh, given our our current landscape, and is to actually remove partisanship from our political uh, sphere, remove oh, okay. the, the the party elements of the labels, of our right? Sphere. Yeah, the, the 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 party names, the labels, the logos, the branding, the marketing, all that needs to go. And I think in our current system, Canada being based on the British uh, Westminster system. We do have mm-hmm. a structure already in place where we could do that with some minor changes. And we don't need to look too far for an example because we're very lucky in Canada. Our constitution with respect to municipal governments is very limited in that it basically just states that municipal governments are under the jurisdiction and responsibility of provinces. So because okay. of that, a lot of structures and authorities don't exist within the purview of municipalities. And that's typically why uh, we've ended up with a system where political parties don't dabble in municipal politics officially. There's always backroom stuff, of course. But yeah. in Canada, when uh, when you run for mayor or city council in whichever town or city you live in, uh, when when the you know the politician puts their sign up, there's no logo associated to it. There's no party behind it. There's no branding behind it and whatnot. Person, right? Absolutely. And I think that we're really lucky to have that structure because in the United States, uh, municipalities do have a lot of authority under the constitution and their partisan politics uh, exist within the municipal level as well. So I think if we look at our municipal level in Canada and how we have elections and how people get elected and so on, we can easily replicate that at a provincial and federal level as well if we just remove the the, the party affiliations with it and people mm-hmm. are forced to run as individuals and bring their own ideas to the table um, to get elected to to either the legislature or the parliament. I think it's difficult, but I don't think it's impossible the way that the way that it's been laid out, like you said. I think I think f- people are very much used to seeing, like you said, a brand and associating something with that brand. But if we can break that mentality and that mold and start doing our research, if I'm not mistaken, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in the Baha'i faith, we are encouraged to vote and, and partake in the in the political system, at least in that way. But we aren't told to vote on political parties. We're told to ignore party lines and look at the person who's running and see what their core values are and what they're running on and what their platform is and really take it to heart at who this person is. And sort of we're judging the, the, the person by their character rather than judging them by the party that they're affiliated with. And I think that really speaks a lot to uh, what you said is, is finding that best person suited for the job, not people historically who you've, who you've I don't know, supported based on, on brand loyalty or, or whatnot. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that there's a huge opportunity there because we have the internet now. People can go to the website of particular candidates and actually read up about them, find out what the background is, what they stand for and whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I encourage everyone to do that, even though I know it's difficult because it requires research. And it is a little bit more yeah. difficult within the Canadian system because when you vote for uh, in a provincial or federal election, even though you're voting for the, the government. Uh, to you know the party to go into power and their leader uh, mm-hmm. you're basically voting for the leader indirectly even though the leader tends to sway most people's votes right. most people don't know who their local candidate in their riding is um, yeah. even though that's the person that they should be they should be paying attention to they should be going to the local uh, you know the town hall or the evening debates or whatever they have in their riding um, and actually see the person in you know face to face 
uh, find out how they speak, how they answer questions and that kind of thing, uh, rather than just going off of who the leader is and uh, potentially getting swept up in some sort of a bandwagon uh, effect when people get yeah. excited for one person or another. That's true. How, how many people do you think voted for Justin Trudeau because of how handsome he was? Or how maybe approachable well, or young and, you know, that whole thing where he has that, he has that gravitas in a way. Yeah, that, that's always, that's always a factor for sure. I mean, it was a factor for Barack Obama. It was a, it's a back, factor for mm-hmm. Justin Trudeau. It was a factor for Emmanuel Macron. He's um, also a legacy Trudeau, obviously. Yeah, that, brand, that name, it, that brand name, last name recognition. Yeah, it depends what part of the country you're in. If you're in Alberta, it doesn't go very far. Actually, it hurts you big time. Um, but if you're in parts of Southern Ontario or parts of Quebec, I mean, very particular parts of Quebec. Um, it does, it does go pretty far. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that obviously does help being good looking is never going to hurt you. Uh, But the, uh, the context that should be considered as well, Uh, when Trudeau first, uh, ran in 2015, uh, to, to become prime minister, uh, that was after nine years of Stephen Harper. And a lot of people were sick and tired of Stephen Harper on both the left and the right. So they wanted a guy they can get behind, uh, that can just whip, you know, kick him out basically. And mm-hmm. uh, a lot of uh, people that would have, you know, typically been more NDP loyalists were not too enamored with Tom Mulcair, even though I think he's a fantastic parliamentarian. Uh, the mm-hmm. public did not feel that way at all. Uh, it w- he definitely was not Jack Layton. So right. Trudeau was the guy they were able to get behind uh, to, you know, maybe fulfill some degree of a vision and definitely get Harper out. And he absolutely did that with a massive majority uh, coming out of nowhere. Yeah, I don't want to talk too much about Harper, but I, I definitely sure. know that in his in his era, like you said, those nine years, which was was quite a lot. Um, I felt like he made Canada into less of Canada. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but I felt like everything that Canada had stood for in its past and, and what we were known for was kind of a little bit turned on its head uh, during his era in terms of like you know closing our borders to I don't know immigration to just making like I remember for example one 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 at home example for me is for example fernando's uh, mom lived in canada for for like nine years she naturalized she became a citizen and then she ended up moving back to bolivia getting married etc having kids and just because of that her three kids were born with canadian passports mm-hmm. whereas now if i'm not mistaken and through through uh, his his time even if two canadians have a child who happens to be born somewhere overseas like if they're on vacation or whatever or if they're just living abroad for a little while that child still has to come back and apply for citizenship even though he's like born of two canadians and and you know he's he's they're gonna live in canada it's it's a weird it's sort of a weird little situation and i don't want to get too into the details of like you know how much money you have how many points you have like those systems come and go but like it's weird that we've sort of gone from that one really loosey-goosey sort of end of the spectrum to like really tight and it's hard it's hard once those things are enacted to go back on those um yeah and and i mean obviously not to get too deep into it but the reality is based on what your observation you made the harper brand of uh, government or politics is a lot different than past conservative uh, governments. And mm-hmm. you have to kind of drill down into the history of it where past conservative governments were progressive conservative governments. So you had folks like Brian Mulroney, Joe Clark, Kim Campbell, yeah. John Diefenbaker, and so on. Uh, but the, the current conservative party we see in Canada today is a rebranded party that basically came out of the Reform Party in the 90s. And that's oh. that brand mm-hmm. of conservative conservatism is is far more hardliner. Um, they they um, they stand for a lot of things that are probably not consistent with what you would call Canadian values. Right. Um, and that was basically Preston Manning, Stephen Harper's vision 
uh, you know, as to where Canada should go. So that's probably why the flavor of what we saw in the in the Harper years of nine nine years um, is a lot different than what we saw with Brian Murray in the eighties or you know Diefen Baker. In, in that the makes 50s. sense. I also feel like maybe Bush had a little bit, or not necessarily Bush himself, but him and his people had had sort of an influence in in trying to sort of guiding where where we were going in that during those times as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. It, U.S. politics has always influenced Canada in what way or the in one way or the other, uh, whether it's directly or you know through policy and foreign policy or indirectly just based on how we vote. For whatever reason, historically, if you want to go back so as early as you know 1920 or something, every time there's been a Republican in power in the U.S., for whatever mm-hmm. reason, we tend to vote conservative, and when there's a Democrat in power, we tend to vote liberal. We like to sink. Yeah, exactly. Now, why to do that? It doesn't make too much sense. I mean, one mm-hmm. can say it's actually strategic because if you're playing ball with the U.S., you're more likely to get stuff from them. But I don't mm-hmm. think it's deliberate. I think it's subconscious. I don't know why. Uh, okay. But if you look at it uh, for much time, uh, when when uh, JFK was in power, we had Trudeau. Um, and uh, for most of uh, Ronald Reagan's era, if not all of it, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Brian Mulroney was in power. Throughout the 90s, when it was mostly Bill Clinton, we had Jean Chrétien. And of course, um, when uh, when uh, Trudeau came to power, Obama was still in office. That yeah. was actually, from what I read, one of the strategies, I think the second time Stephen Harper uh, triggered an election in 2008, I believe, where he got his second minority. He wanted mm-hmm. to do it right before the U.S. election in late 2008 because he had a hunch that Barack Obama would win. That makes sense. Yeah. So, so he wanted to lock it in. Exactly. Right before that happened. So yeah. there has been a little bit of that. I don't know how I mean how many political scientists out there would actually give it validity. But if you look at it, it it's a matchup pretty good. It sounds legit. And I think also part of I think part of the reason why Canada tried to maybe go a little bit more into the U.S. Uh, style of of uh, conservatism during Harper, I think, is also is post nine eleven. It was a lot of time where we there was a lot of solidarity happening. I think, and I think we were just trying to stand with our with our neighbors. And I think, in a way, that may have contributed to some of Harper's decision making or him and his him and his crew. So maybe that had something to play into. But I do I do really like your theory, and it makes a lot of sense on that. Um, yeah, I mean th- that could be part of it. I mean Stephen Harper didn't become prime minister to the two thousand six. Yeah, it was a few years later. So I think we also had later. that mentality. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that was a good excuse. I, a lot of people would make public policy decisions or foreign policy decisions based on, you know, uh, domestic security in the name of terrorism. Uh, mm-hmm. But that we know we've seen time and time again that excuse is getting old because you know foreign threats have always been a reality regardless of who it is, um, yeah. and we've just kind of gotten used to it. So it's uh, you probably don't see that used as much as you used to before. Yeah, I think so too. Well, okay, I think that was a really cool chat that we had. Um, I don't, I don't know where to go from here, but I think, I think, I think we're we've reached our sort of our, our cap uh, in the spectrum. It's a lot to take in, and hopefully, people who are listening can maybe listen to it over a couple times and let us know their thoughts and stuff after the fact. So, thank you so much for sharing your insights. It was really cool to cool to hear some of these things. Um, uh, yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you. Um, I'm going to play us out with some Coldplay. The song is called Adventure of a Lifetime. Uh, Thanks again. Guys, uh, get informed about politics. It's not all bad. (laughs) Thank you.
You guys gotta see this video, Dancing Monkeys. <laughs> A billion views. <laughs> 